The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. To have uh, the opportunity to share this afternoon with this amazing and very talented group of women um, speaking about art as a uh, catalyst for positive transformation. I'm just going to quickly introduce everybody, and then just the format for this afternoon is going to be everyone's going to talk for about eight or ten minutes. Um, they're going to be approaching this issue from four different perspectives. And after that, we're going to break up into small groups so that you get to have a little more of a chance to have a little more intensive conversation about the area that you're interested in. And then we'll all come back and kind of do a report back so everyone can have an experience from uh, the other little um, breakout groups. So our first speaker is going to be Fabiana Rodriguez, who is an incredible activist and uh, interdisciplinary artist. Our next speaker is going to be Alan Holt, who is the Associate Director uh, at the Institute for Diversity in Art at Stanford University. She is also a playwright and an artist and a writer. And then our um, uh, third panelist is Christian Frock, who is an educator and a curator who focuses on um, art in the public sphere. And I'm Dorka Keen, I'm an arts commissioner and also a public artist. So we're gonna start with Fabiana. I'm so excited to be here. You, you know, I know many of you, and um, I know you know of my work. And this is my first time at Bioneers, even though I grew up in Oakland. I've never um, attended Bioneers, so I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm happy that there's a space um, for art. So what I'm going to talk about is we all understand that art matters in social change, and we all understand the power of art. Uh, but I think sometimes we're missing a framework on, to explain exactly why art can play such a transformative role uh, in, in our work where many of us are fighting for justice. And so I'm going to attempt to provide a framework for that and just to uh, help you think about some values around why this work is especially important for those of us working for social change and then give you some examples. Uh, so first is that culture change precedes political change. Uh, and my friend Jeff Chang um, talks about how uh, politics and policy change actually is the final manifestation of a cultural shift that has already happened, right? And so what this means is that many of the policy wins that we may understand, whether it's a whim at the Supreme Court level or it's the election of Barack Obama, uh, many of these things are climactic moments and they're events, uh, but they are waves and there are currents and there are trends and ways of thinking that lead to that event. And that's what cultural space is. That's what the space of culture is. Culture is what surrounds us all the time. And it's the way that the images and the stories and the narratives and the, uh, the ideas uh, through which we form community. Now, culture changes us as much as we can change culture. And sometimes it takes one person to change culture, right? It takes somebody like Kanye West, who after Katrina said, Bush doesn't care about black people. Or it takes somebody uh, like Lady Gaga to withdraw her support to Target 
and create cultural ripples or a movement like Black Lives Matter to really just center a conversation that uh, in the past hadn't been centered. Uh, the, the one thing about art is that so much of art is about how you see. It's about your frame, right? And, and, and often we learn in social justice organizing that we need to expand the frame or the, the key word here, everyone says, we have to change the narrative. I think that um, if we think about that, um, in the social justice space, while we all understand that we have to change the narrative, there's actually very little investment in arts and culture. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, in fact, artists and musicians are often uh, have a very exploitative relationship with social justice groups. Social justice groups will call us when they need a poster or when they need something done at the last minute or when you need a musician at your events or a poet. But there's really what's missing is deep relationships with artists. Now, artists are also, you you know, if you look at the data on artists around the country, artists are workers. Artists are working class people. The median in income for artists is $30,000 a year. Four out of five artists are white. Working artists are white, which means that there's already a lot of barriers to becoming an artist. And if we understand that culture is a very, very powerful tool in transformation, let's think about who controls and who runs culture. Who are the forces that make your children's books, your comic books, the films you see? All of those things perpetuate the status quo. And all of those things work to solidify implicit bias, right? Whether it's implicit bias against black people or against immigrants or implicit bias in favor of cheap food as opposed to food that is nourishing and that's made in a, in a healthy way, culture often works against us. And so it's always been... Um, for me, uh, interesting to see why as a sector, why as a social justice sector, and, and especially as an ecological sector, we invest so little in culture. Um, and uh, I believe that it's important to bring artists to the table because who makes culture, who creates culture is artists. Um, and often artists, again, are seen at the sidelines, oops, or they're seen um, as uh, people to implement a political strategy. But what I am here to propose to you is to actually think of culture as the idea space. Okay, um, if you look at this image here, the action space, imagine the action space to be the space of policy, uh, a space of laws, the space of urgency, right? And many of our movements sometimes, you know, they're working against uh, police brutality or they're working against GMOs or they're working um, against uh, uh, labor laws, right? And um, the action space is a space of urgency and who gets to decide these laws? Well, it's majority white men in Congress and often we're tailoring our messages to them, right? We wanna get an op-ed in the New York Times and make sure that Senator XYZ reads it. Uh, the space of action is often a reactive space, which means that we are barely holding the line. We are in a constant state of reaction. Um, and, and as a result, often we are stuck in a place of what's politically feasible, right? We, we have to think only according to what uh, our, we can win in the, in the political space. But and I, and I think often our, our action space is about the no, right? What we're against. Um, and I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what we're for. Like, what does the yes look like, right? What is a future world where the gender binary doesn't exist, a world in which there's no exploitation, a world in which we're living um, in unison with, with, na with the natural world? What does that look like and sound like? And where are the narratives for that? Um, and this is why I propose that we have to also play in the idea space. And so when you are working with an artist who's working on that romantic comedy or that love novel or that 
you know, 20-page book that's going to take two or three years, that's a worthwhile investment for our sector. It's important that we value artists and that we give them the space and the tools and the resources to create work in the idea space. Otherwise, we're just limited to what's politically feasible and we're not living with our imagination. And I think imagination, I mean, Einstein said it, imagination is more important than knowledge. It's more powerful than knowledge. And if we can imagine, I mean, imagination really allows allows us to see ourselves in our full humanity. Um, I, I, I very much believe that, and I'm going to show you some examples of, of how that happens and, and how I do that in my work. So first, uh, when I was working in the migrant rights sector, um, uh, there's an implicit bias in the minds of a lot of Americans, voters, that they think of Mexicans as cockroaches, right? They won't say that, but when they're asked to compare Mexicans to an insect or to an animal, they will think of cockroaches. In the same way that when you interview people, kids, around whether they, what, they have a white doll and a black doll, and what doll they see as the most the nice doll, they'll choose the white doll. That's implicit bias. That's, uh, that's unconscious bias. So um, I created a campaign that was around seeing migrants as butterflies, as monarch butterflies, because the monarchs also cross borders, and really creating playful ways and positive ways for people to participate in creating their own wings and to understand that migration is a human phenomenon, that we do not recognize borders. Butterflies don't recognize borders. Human beings have been migrating since the beginning of time. And if I were to go to a politician and say, you know, fuck your borders, your borders don't exist, they would laugh and they would they, they can't do anything with that. But as an idea, nevertheless, the, the idea of no borders is still something we should dream about. Um, I mean, the natural world doesn't recognize borders. And um, I created these projects where people could participate and, and, and uh, own and create their own work within a container of an idea, which was the migration is beautiful. And I, I, I let people use it freely, but also um, really help them frame how this narrative was going to play out, which the narrative was not, you know, stop deportations or give us citizenship. It was around migration is beautiful. Our migrant parents who migrated here did so because they loved us. That's a beautiful narrative. It's not a criminalized narrative. What you hear in the media is a narrative of criminality. And that narrative is so powerful that today you have 1,100 people deported every day. A lot of mothers, mostly mothers. And, and, and that to me means that the implicit bias that says that migrants are criminals is winning. So I believe that we can find another way. The story I'm going to close with, I'm running out of time here, but the story I'm going to close with is about abortion. Um, so I had an abortion when I was 21 years old, and uh, it was very... Uh, I, I was in the closet about it for 10 years, but I had an abortion and I was in the closet because I was a 4.2 college-bound student, full ride to UC Berkeley, head of my class, really the model young Latina. And although I was very... Uh, you know, focused on getting a good education. What I did not learn, I didn't learn how to have sex in a consensual, empowering way. In fact, I hardly got any sex education. Um, and my family just had sex in the, in, as a, it was a silence. 
thing. There was nothing was ever, the only time sex was, uh, I talked about sex with anyone, it was always through a fear-based narrative, right? Again, don't get pregnant, um, you're going to get an STD. And so I decided to come out as a, uh, almost like as a performance and as a way to uh, interrupt the public debate because people think, oh, Latinas, uh, they, you know, they're very conservative, they probably don't have abortions. Well, that's a lie. One in three women in this country has an abortion. Many of them are Latinas. Um, and I wanted to break that narrative, but I also wanted to talk about something bigger, which was around, um, which was around uh, sexual rights and sexual justice. And so again, uh, going to the space of ideas, and I wanted to talk about pussy power as well. I wanted to talk about this because at the core, abortion is a policy effect. The bigger problem here is that our young people don't get sex education, and young women grow up thinking, grow up thinking that they're just uh, somehow here to for somebody else's pleasure. So that's what I wanted to disrupt. And this is an example of how, if, when you start with ideas, um, you can uh, have a, a, a deeper impact on someone's imagination. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, I have to follow Fabi. <sighs> I don't have any coloring pages of vaginas. <laughs> Bear with me while we get my less incendiary images. My name is Christian Frock. Thanks for coming into this windowless room with us today. This is a really good looking group, super diverse. I'm very excited about this. Thanks, Dorka. Thank you, Dorka, too, for having us. It's a great group. So I'm an independent curator, um, writer, and educator. I'm uh, sort of the quintessential adjunct this semester. I teach at SFAI, CCA, and the California Institute for Integral Studies. And I'm also 2015-2016 Scholar-in-Residence at the Center for Art and Public Life at CCA this year, which is really exciting. I'm going to talk a little bit about the center. Um, Visible Venue, the curatorial enterprise I started 10 years ago this month, uh, collaborates with artists to present art in public spaces. It started as a very DIY um, an experiment to think about how to create a public space outside of uh, public spaces and to create public space and public expression online. Um, my writing about art and public life and artists impacting social justice has been featured in The Guardian US. Um, I actually have a piece coming out sometime in the next week about the Burning Man sculpture that's coming to my little village in San Leandro, um, which has erupted like one of the most interesting public art dialogues I've ever seen um, in San Leandro, mostly focused on whether or not the sculpture is nude. Um, um, like really angry letters to our 12-page newspaper and um, lots of commentary on Nextdoor, which is a really interesting social platform for your, talking with your neighbors. I've also done some writing for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I had a book come out this year with Chronicle Books called Unexpected Art. Um, <clears throat> and my current exhibition, uh, which also has a book of the same title and uh, which features Fabiano's work, is... Um, called uh, Public Works Artist Interventions 1970s to Now, which is on view at Mills College Museum through December 13th. This is the front of Mills. This is the work of Susan O'Malley out front. And um, 
Um, I am working on a show as yet untitled that will just open in, in a very short period of time from now in March at your Bueno Center for the Arts focused on art activism and innovation from the Bay Area because it all comes from here, <laughs> right? So that's really exciting when you think about all of those things, not necessarily all of the art. Obviously, there's artists in other places. Um, but activism and innovation uh, begins here and ripples out across the rest of the country. And so the exhibition is going to be looking at how artists are working. Favi is also in that show. I've just decided to work on everything with Favi from now on. Um, but it, there are other artists as well. <laughs> And this, I wanted to share this with you. This is a, um, an inscription on the back of Mills College Art Museum. It says, art remains the only place, the only way possible of speaking the truth. That's a Barrett, um, Elizabeth Barrett quote that was inscribed on the building in the 1930s when it was built. And um, while we were laying out the show, we decided to um, light that. Um, as one of the artworks in the exhibition, uh, because it's true. and. Um, this is a, just a screenshot of the show um, that's on the Mills uh, College Art Museum website. To give you an idea, there are 22 artists and collectives in the exhibition. It is all women, but we did not put that in the title. It was a low, uh, low threshold experiment in seeing what it would be like to organize a show of all women without calling it a show of all women. And women are really happy about that. <laughs> So it features 22 artists and collectives, all of whom have done <clears throat> radical interventions in public space, sometimes sanctioned, sometimes not, um, all relatively small gestures, um, a lot of DIY projects, and um, works that are all aimed at political change, sometimes in soft, po soft political activist ways, and sometimes in really radical, um, aggressive ways. And we have a... Um, Let's see, I'm lecturing on the 4th of November with Tanya Zimbardo, who co-curated the show with me. We have a performance on November 8th that's free to attend with Jennifer Wofford. And on December 6th, we have a uh, intervention on the ferry between Oakland and San Francisco with Connie Hockaday. Um, those are those last two performances we did in collaboration with San Francisco uh, nonprofit space Southern Exposure. <clears throat> and you can get more details about the show there. Here's a copy of the book, the cover of the book, featuring Bonnie Shirk's Sitting Still, Still series from 1970, which was a very simple gesture. It anchors the exhibition, though. Oh, I see. I realize now there's people sitting on the floor. There's still chairs up front, so come on up. Don't worry about walking through while people are talking. Okay. Um, <clears throat> In 1970, Bonnie uh, saw this um, intersection, which is the Army Street Exchange, where the freeway ended up going up, uh, near her home and dragged a armchair. The armchair actually might have been out in the center. She went out there in an evening gown and sat there and um, did a whole series like this around San Francisco, which at the time was a radical performative gesture, and it holds different significance now when you think about the sit-lie ordinance in San Francisco, which you know, means that you can, um, you can be cited for sitting still. Um, the likelihood that you would be cited for sitting still if you're um, just Caucasian sitting still is less than if you're anyone else. Um, but I have known artists who uh, Megan Wilson was um, taken into custody while working on a mural at Clarion Alley Project because she laid down on the ground to work on the bottom. <clears throat> I know, stop. That's right. <laughs> 
and so, I mean, it goes back to, um, to me, this work also speaks to the chess players being taken off of Market Street, the, the people playing chess along Market Street, kind of in the Tenderloin area, they're no longer allowed on the street to play chess. Um, and so a lot of the exhibition really looks at the ways in which public space has shrunk in response to privatization and development in San Francisco, but it's not just here. It's happening all over the country. Um, and so Bonnie's, Bonnie's work, uh, we have 85 stills that are being shown as a slide projection in the exhibition. And um, it is a beautiful, huge uh, projection when you walk in to see all of that work. And as I mentioned before, I'm also at the Center for Art and Public Life. I just brought a couple of screenshots to give you a bit of an orientation on what they do. The Center for Art and Public Life at CCA is a really um, extraordinary organization within a college setting. It was founded uh, 15 years ago by Suzanne Lacey, um, who is very well known now, Rebel Rouser. And um, I'm there. They basically, they do several things, but basically I'll just focus on this blue business here. So the Center for Art and Public Life works with community-based partners and partner students and actually funds students to work on socially engaged projects with specific communities over an extended period of time, sometimes one semester, sometimes two semesters. And they've been doing that for 15 years and they've done projects all over the globe very quietly. They have projects that are specifically in Oakland, but they also have projects that have taken place in other countries. And um, I've basically been invited in uh, to mine the archive and to think about the uh, precedent for creating the project in 2000, which if you think about it was a particularly loaded time. I mean, that's the beginning of Homeland Security following 9-11, the real restriction on um, uh, the, you know, the Patriot Act, all kinds of things that came out of public, you know, came out of 9-11 that were about restricting public expression and um, public space. And so the center began during this very heated time and now it's in its 15th year. And we're gonna be working on a, basically what I'm doing with them is working on a presentation that will be part of open engagement in the spring I've got the one minute mark. And, um, and then just to give you a little background, this was a project I did yesterday <laughs> with SF MoMA at the Maritime Museum um, in partnership with, um, Invisible Venue always collaborates with someone else. And so I collaborated with Ernest Jolly, Oakland-based artist Ernest Jolly. We invited uh, African-American historian and John, John, Sergeant Johnson scholar John William Templeton to come have a conversation with us about Sergeant Johnson's unfinished mural. This is uh, Gary Camilla um, speaking at the end of the day, but this is also an excellent image of Sergeant Johnson's unfinished mural uh, when he was working, high profile African American artist working for the WPA in the 1930s. Really an amazing radical legacy in San Francisco. I don't know that it could have happened anywhere else, to be honest with you. And one of the really amazing things about this mural, which is on the veranda, looking out over the aquatic park and like pretty much like paradise at sunset, I have to tell you. The green part of the wall shows where Sergeant Johnson walked off the job when he learned that during a period of economic crisis, the um, facilities were going to be privately uh, rented and there was going to be a private casino and dining room. And uh, he told, he supervised anywhere from 15 to 45 artists. He said, everybody, pack up and get out. We're not building a private dining room. So they painted the wall green, but it's still there. And I think sometimes the things that artists finish are really important, and sometimes the things that they don't are really important. Thank you.
Hello, everybody. My name is Alon Holt. Um, I am a artist, a mother. I um, particularly do my art through playwriting and screenwriting. And um, right now, I am the associate director for the Institute for, the, for Diversity in the Arts, which is an academic program at Stanford University. And there, uh, my work is to bridge the gap between art practice and spiritual practice, particularly with students of color, particularly with queer-identified students um, and gender non-conforming students, so really the students that are most vulnerable to a lot of the injustices that are happening in our world. And these are the students that are calling themselves artists in my space. And so how do we really support artists um, is a question that I think about a lot um, in a real tangible way. So the class that I'm teaching this quarter, and I don't have any visuals, so it's all right here. <laughs> the class I'm teaching this quarter is called uh, Conjure and Manifest, Building a Sustainable Artistic Practice. And I called it that because I didn't want to scare off anybody by bringing in a lot of spiritual talk too far off in the front. But little did they know they were entering into a spiritual development class. And it was really beautiful because uh, it opened the spiritual space to be um, accessible to people who are not represented um, on our main screen level. So like yoga for my students is something that they're not really trying to get into because it's a white thing. Uh, meditation is something that's very scary because, one, it's scary because sitting with yourself is oftentimes very frightening. Um, but also it's just, again, a lot of narratives around uh, this is not for me. And I think that that is very, very scary um, because uh, it is. And not only is it for you, it is of you. And so what a lot of my work is to remind my students that uh, you created this and it is yours. And now I'm doing some work um, at reminding you of that, but also allowing you to step back into that power. Um, and it's doing some great things. It's doing some great things. Uh, a lot of my students last year were involved with a lot of the activism surrounding Black Lives Matter. Um, surrounding Black Trans Lives Matter, surrounding Say Her Name. Um, and they gave so much of themselves. Um, about 68 of my students stood on a, the San Mateo Bridge during Martin Luther King Day, shut down that bridge during rush hour, and really declared that we are here. We are here even if your cars are trying to be, go to work. We are here even if you're late. We are here. And it was a beautiful thing, and I'm so proud of them. Um, that was last year. This year, they came in in the fall, and uh, I never saw a group of students look so depleted uh, in my life. And uh, this was the beginning of fall quarter, and I, I'm a Stanford graduate, so I understand, like, winter gets really tough, and, like, the sun starts to set a lot quicker. And as we know, like, the sun is, especially if you're, you know, you're familiar with um, issues around de depression, like, the sun is really important to, like, regulate yourself. And so I understand that winter can get tough, but when the students are coming and it's the first day of fall quarter, I think that's a huge red flag. Um, and I felt that. So uh, my class about building a sustainable artistic practice, for me, it quickly became clear that it's about building a sustainable spiritual practice, which for me is just about building a way to remind yourself every day, no matter what triggers may arise, that you're okay and that you're seen 
and that you're heard and that you're supported. Um, and at places like Stanford and uh, many of the places around the Bay Area, we move so fast, and that's a way of kind of helping us to forget that sometimes when we slow down, we can say to ourselves, like, I'm not okay. Um, and so allowing that space for my students to not only say that they're not okay, but to start to find ways to better ourselves. So wellness is something that we do a lot of. So they came in thinking that they were going to uh, develop a spiritual practice, but for the first hour of our two hours together, we spend it taking care of each other. We spend it sitting in silence for 30 minutes, which for me still as a practicing you know, person, a person who meditates, a person who does yoga, still can be a kind of hard thing, especially now that I'm standing and stepping into more of a facilitator role. Um, so I'd like to call myself a, an Afro-optimist. <laughs> and what that means for me is uh, I believe that there are two people in this, two types of people in this world. One who believes that the things that happen to them are curses and others who believe that the things that happen to them are cures. I'm tested on this often. <laughs> it's easy to call something a cure when it makes you smile and feel good. It's hard to call something a cure when you're out there like many of my students and you're out on this bridge and you're just trying to say that you're here and alive, but now this year you are being, you're, you know, you're being called guilty in a court of law and you're dealing with all of the repercussions now of our criminal justice system. Um, so how do you remind students, artists, and activists even during those times that no, this is not a curse, this is a cure? And I think that when we start to shift that narrative, it does a lot for our sense of being. Um, and I've seen it do a lot for them. Um, and of course, I, I always say that healing is not something that happens like, poof, you're healed. You know, it's, it's not like this magical game in that way. It's something that happens in like brief moments. It's like when the student who's in the back of the class that, during week one, like, is the first one to go into a down dog in week three. You know, like, that is like a moment of healing when it's like, dude, like, you did that. And like, how did it make you feel? You know? Um, and so it's, it's, been a, it's been some great, it's been some great work, um, but it's also been a pretty difficult work because I'm realizing uh, and how necessary it is to not only uh, spread kind of this information, but to uh, really step myself up and being... It just makes a difference that I'm a black woman that's not a traditional yoga-sized figure that's leading this workshop. And I never knew that, but, you know, you don't, that's something that you don't know until you know, until like the person across from you who also looks like you is now, feels like they can be welcomed into the space in a way that's not like isolating. And um, spaces can be isolating even if you don't intend them to be, you know, it's not, it's not enough to uh, say without saying that all are welcome here, especially in spaces like this that, you know, that tout like futurism. Um, it's not enough to just say that. Like, you have to actively, like, bring people in who will bring other people in. Um, and, like, or actively say on your messaging, like, this is a trans-friendly space. This is a sp space that is safe for people of color because we know that in the society that we live in right now, like, uh, it's not. And being neutral on that train is not going to get us to the world that we want to live in. Um, so my assignment, 
uh, last week was to um, imagine Stanford as a utopian space, which was interesting because there's this rub between Stanford is a utopian space because it's a highly privileged elitist university, um, but also that it's representative of every evil that the man has ever done to anybody and everything. So it's like this interesting rub, and a lot of my students kind of lie on that side. So what does it do to, uh, for five to ten minutes, say, now imagine something new and allow us to imagine that with you? Um, and so giving that space to uh, my students has been, been pretty amazing. Um, so I guess really all I wanted to say is how necessary it is to not only change the narratives, but also to live those changes. Um, and so I'm living those changes. I'm learning to live more of those changes, but also like giving those changes out to others, um, especially artists. So how do you take care of artists? Really, it's by uh, taking care of yourselves. Um, and I tell it to my students, we oftentimes think of healers as those who heal others. But really, healers are only able to heal themselves and through healing themselves, offer inspiration for others to do similar work. So it's, it's, it's forced me to kind of raise my game up in a really beautiful way as well. Um, and I invite you to do similar work. And I'm excited to share more about the things that happened in our class and ha are happening in our class um, in our breakout session. So thank you. I was one of those artists, Christian, that you talked about who actually had the experience of having someone tell them to get off the street while we were sitting there working on our artwork, and it was right in front of the Twitter building. And uh, I happen to know as an arts commissioner that you can actually sit on the street. Um, other artists probably would have been frightened by that experience, but the security guard who told us to leave was so afraid of losing his job that we actually moved so that we were underneath the security cameras so that the security, Twitter's security camera can watch us. So it's kind of amazing to live in a city where you can't even be creative, you know, without being harassed by, uh, you know, some of the bigger entities there. But I really believe that artists should be at the table. They should be at every table. Um, and if we're going to have social transformation, then we have to create opportunities for artists to be there. And right now, in many cities, there are some cities like Detroit, because artists are always on the cutting edge. They're the ones who come to a place this, uh, first, and they're the ones who get pushed out first. And so in places like Detroit, we see artists coming back into that community and really having an incredible impact on what's happening there. But in places like San Francisco and other cities, uh, we're seeing artists that are being pushed out. So if we value arts and arts organizations, then how do we ensure that they stay so that we can continue um, to, to benefit from their inputs? And I think what most people don't realize, but what button? <laughs> Highly technical over here. No, is that the, it's mine's on my computer. It's not on the black thing. On the oh, black thing is that. Ah, okay, that's this thing. I see, all right. No, it's, do I just, there we go. Okay, all right. Um, 
So one of the things that I really like to highlight is the economic impact of arts and arts organizations and how the creative economy is a huge financial benefactor to any city or town or community. The arts bring a lot of money into the economy and artists and creative people bring a lot of money into the economy. And I'm, you know, so I'm not gonna read this. But can you guys see this in the back? All right. It generates $135 billion worth of economic activity in this country. And I think the bottom is really interesting. It's that it generates $22 billion in revenue to local, state, and federal governments every year. Yet, nationally, the government only spends $4 billion on arts allocations. Now, I don't know if you are, any of you are investors, but if you invested $4 billion and at the end of the year you got $22 billion, you would be doing really, really well. So with very small investment in the arts, and obviously there are other folks who are investing in the arts, private foundations and corporate foundations, individuals, but really the arts play a are a huge economic driver. And I think what we don't realize is how much money is actually brought into the economy when people go to events, when they go to, um, you know, a play or they go to a film screening or any kind of performance. Not only are they buying the ticket to go to that performance as supporting artists, but they're also, you know, probably uh, getting daycare so that they can go out without their kids. They are going to the neighborhood and having a drink or having a meal, so they're supporting the local merchants there. You know, they're going out maybe afterwards to a bar. So all of those things really play into how the arts support the economy. And it's not just about arts organizations, but it's about the entire community, the entire neighborhood. So arts are a vital part of our cities and our towns. And so what I think a lot of on the, art, on the Arts Commission is how do we ensure that we continue to have artists and arts organizations in our city? In San Francisco, it's been dramatic, the lo loss of arts organizations, the loss of art galleries. And so a few years ago, one of the things that we started to do is we started to look at what arts organizations were out there and what their needs were. And what we found was that most arts organizations were being pushed out as well as artists uh, and galleries were being pushed out of their spaces because they could no longer afford their spaces because other companies were coming in and bumping up the rent, right? So we worked with the mayor's office to uh, get a couple million dollars from the mayor's office and started with the help of the Rainin Foundation, an organization called CAST, the Community Arts Stabilization Trust. Uh, and it's really cutting edge. I mean, it hasn't been done anywhere else in the country where we uh, are providing money to arts organizations to stabilize their leases or to buy their buildings. So in the first year that this has been enacted, we have worked to support six organizations uh, with lease issues we also um, just bought this building for Counterpulse. It's a building in the Tenderloin. It was the old Dollhouse Theater, so it's really, really cool that we were able to buy a building that was already a theater that is going to be continued to be used as a theater, and Counterpulse is never going to have to worry about rent again. They are going to own this building. So we're continuing that kind of work. We still have some of that, uh, another million dollars left, so we're going to be continuing to work with other organizations the other thing that we're doing in San Francisco, which is not particularly cutting edge, but it's cutting edge for San Francisco, is uh, federally, artists are a protective class, which means that we can 
across the country, cities and states can build artist housing specifically for artists. Uh, we have not done that yet in San Francisco. We finally just got the okay this summer from the mayor and the city attorney to do this. This is Theaster Gates, who is an incredible artist uh, in his own right, and he also has been in South Chicago buying up property. He started by basically buying a couple houses around his house. He built, he bought this incredible uh, old bank that he's turning into a cultural center. He also bought a series of buildings that he turned into artist housing. So I think these are models that we can look at across the country um, where you can go into neighborhoods where there are already artists and, and start buying buildings. Because once you own it, you don't get kicked out. The other thing that we're working on in San Francisco is we're looking, working at the planning department to rezone areas. So this is a typical building that um, an automotive shop might be in or an artist. And it also happens to be a building that a lot of uh, companies like to come in and take over. So how do we create that building? How do we allow it to benefit all the different entities? So one of the things that we're talking about doing with planning department is to zone that building so that it can go up. So the down part can stay that type. The top next two floors could be artist workspaces. And then the next two floors could be office spaces which would be beneficial for the developer then to do the whole building. So that everyone wins. And then the last thing that we're doing is, uh, is partnering with private entities. So this is Andy and Deborah Rappaport. Andy made a bunch of money in the tech world. And we talked to them about the need in San Francisco for gallery spaces. Last year alone, we lost 20 galleries. Those galleries represent a lot of artists. So because they too are being pushed out of the market. Well, Andy and Deborah aren't really people who are interested in doing nonprofit work, but they were interested in buying a building and providing gallery space at low market rates. So this is going to be an incredible building. It, it's so beautiful, the renderings of what it's going to look like, and it's going to have a cafe. Um, and they've also just bought another neighboring building, and they're starting um, to, to, uh, to have artist workspaces in there. So this is another way. So, you know, you can partner with government, you can par partner with private entities um, to really ensure that you're going to have a city that has artists and arts organizations in them. One other thing that we're doing is I'm um, the co-founder of a project called Sites Unseen because I really think that we need to bring the arts out into the community and by doing that, you're also benefiting local businesses. Um, so one of the things, this is a neighborhood, I don't know if you know San Francisco, this is right around Moscone Center. It's the neighborhood that has the least amount of public space in San Francisco. And it's a neighborhood that also has an identity crisis. And they really want to have more places where they can all hang out together. And so they did a huge master plan and they said, you know, what can we do with these alleys? Well, one of the things that we've learned is that when you bring art someplace, it changes the dynamic of that place. So these are really sketchy eight alleys. These are really sketchy alleys. Uh, and the idea is to program those alleys with public art. So there'll be permanent public art. There'll be temporary public art. There's also a huge arts ecosystem there. So we're collaborating with all the arts organizations in that neighborhood to do screenings in those neighborhoods, dance performances. We're working with the local businesses. There are businesses that are on those alleys. So they'll start feeling comfortable putting their cafe chairs out. They'll have events in the evening. There'll be music. There'll be food trucks. 
right? And this provides an opportunity, A, for people to experience art that maybe don't have the opportunity to go into a museum or don't want to go into a museum, but it also provides the opportunity for people to come together in a space that's theirs, where we're going to green it, we're going to put lighting it, we're going to have art in it, and it's going to be an economic benefit for that neighborhood. So that's that. So I think what we're going to do now, if this sounds good to everybody, is that we're going to split up into four different groups. We have, you know, four, I think I'm personally really interested in all of them, areas looking at this issue. And we'll take about 15 minutes to... Um, you know, focus on the area that you're interested in, and then I think we can all come back and kind of have a report back and then maybe some more general Q&A. Does that sound good to everybody? Okay, so what if we have um, Christian in the back, back left, uh, Alan in the back right, Fabiana on the left here, and I'll be here on this side. And so we'll take like 15 minutes. Everyone can kind of split up. Okay, the themes are, Fabiana, how would you describe your theme? So Alon is art and spirituality. And I would say I'm kind of like art and economic development, maybe art in the city. Art and public space. Art and, public space. and art and movement building. Art and movement building. Faviana, who's going to be right up here on the left. You guys, come on back, because we all want to hear from everybody. Yeah. So who from who from Faviana's is gonna who who? Okay, so we're we're gonna hear from Faviana's group. Do you want to come up here so everyone can see you? <laughs> and if this is better, you can use. Want to just use this one? I didn't know I was gonna take the podium. Okay, sure. Highlights. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, so we had a lot of great discussion. There were a lot of artists in our group and people who worked with artists. We had folks share about um, work they'd done, about novels they've read that made them a progressive for the rest of their lives, the impact of art on people's lives. And then we... Um, Tap, we, we tapped Faviana's um, very strategic mind um, about just what's the best way to use art um, to, to, to create movements. Um, and I wrote down the tips she gave us, and I will share them with you. Um, you must find the right artists, so they should be artists who really understand the issues um, and who you can really trust. And you should have resources not just for the artists, but also for the promotion of the project. So for like a PR person, maybe a designer of the promotional material, someone who can pitch to the media, because that can make or break your project. Um, you should provide artists with as much inspiration as possible. So very important not to say like, this is what the final piece should look like, but I mean, um, but you're allowed to say, like, we want a novel, we want a film. But you should actually give them an opportunity to connect with the, with the subject matter. So, um, you know, be able to uh, connect with people who are being impacted by climate change or connect with immigrants. Um, and so they can feel it themselves and then be inspired through that. Um, and give them time to do their work. 
don't rush it. It might take a long time, so you should have deadlines, but they should be um, give the artist plenty of time to do their work um, and allow the artist to lead in the creative parts. Um, then we also talked about narratives and movement building. So what narratives are you trying to shift? You should know. And they should not be too big, otherwise it might not happen. Um, and we talked a lot about how building empathy is really like the winning strategy. Um, how when people feel uh, like, wow, or whoa, or that's awesome feelings, they share that more. Um, and that's what we want to do. We want people to share. Um, and a great way for to generate those feelings is through storytelling, through individual stories. Um, we also want to understand what's the opposition saying. So how can our stories work to rewire people um, to the image, to the frame that we want them to have? Um, and we want to be clear on what emotions we want to stir up. Again, empathy is good. If it's a negative feeling we want to stir up, then we need to also like be clear on, okay, well, what's this next steps? How is that going to be passed on or translate to positive action? Um, and it's really good, especially with millennials, to have a participatory activity that goes with your product. So it might be like a discussion guide or like with Fabiana's butterflies, like these options to like create your own butterflies. Um, I think you did that. I got that from the slides. Um, you should know your audience. Be specific. Where are they? Where do you want them to be? Um, and um, what else? Oh, this was my last note. What does it mean? Um, oh, yes. When people are presented in multidimensional ways, then we are able to connect with them more. So when we show people in their full humanity, it, it allows people to connect with them from across the board. Um, Favi gave the example of... Um, Ellen coming out on national TV and people felt connected to her in her multidimensional humanity. And at that time, we also saw a lot of movement towards gay rights. So, Great, that is our summary. Someone from another group. Hello, can you hear me? Okay, all right. Um, I was working with this lady here. Um, we talked about um, one gentleman mentioned an artist resource uh, center, like a creative creativity cafe, where a place where artists and the public can interact and create a, and have a collaborative space for creating movements or creating different kinds of projects that a particular neighborhood would be invested in. Um, and you mentioned that it's always important to ask permission when going into communities where you are not a resident. <laughs> You know, because you cannot impose. You need to get, you know, vestment in that. Um, another young man asked, uh, how can one motivate neighborhood residents to embrace and support the arts, especially with mural projects and things? And so we talked about um, collaborating with the education system. You know, go to the school kids. Go to the higher ed, too. If there's a community college in there, there's going to be kids who want to paint murals or do public art uh, projects. Um, I would also say, go to because this is my experience. <laughs> I'll do it real quick. Um, we had the Rotary Club, I think it was Rotary, one of those service organizations approached me to get a student to paint one of those um, shipping containers that was used to house their, we have a rails to trails program, and they kept all their things to keep the rails to trails pro um, area nice, but they, the C train thing was ugly. So they came to me and said, can you find us a student who can paint this? And we did, and, uh, you know, and they paid the student, and so we have, you know, everybody won. Student, kid got a professional art credit, credit for this big mural. He got paid, so he's a professional artist now. 
Rotary Club got something nice out of it, and we have Rails to Trails, so everybody won. So anyway, so I would suggest doing that too. Um, and when art starts happening in such areas, people start congregating more because it becomes a place where they want to hang out, because I think we're hardwired for art. Um, and he, well, I think we really are. Um, someone else asked about the financing model, and um, we're talking about, one, building houses for artists, providing locations for galleries that are low cost, and also helping galleries and art organizations to purchase their spaces so they never have to pay rent again. As a nonprofit, then, they wouldn't have to pay taxes either, probably. Um, and also that you, you can get you know, public money um, you know, if the city recognizes the value of art, get that public money, and that public money may attract some private money, and so you can develop that public-private partnership. Um, and art really is a priority. Art can be a priority between um, the citizens and the government, um, the local the local government. Um, and then we someone did ask too about artists as a protected class for housing development. And I did not know this, so I've learned something new today, more than one thing, um, that, that the TARP program was a federal legislation started under Bush. Um, artists gained a special classification that allowed cities and governments to do something for artists, such as build housing for them. And San Francisco is currently working on this, but other cities have been doing this for a while. And that would be very interesting to see. Um, where I come from in Fresno, our whole downtown is getting built up and we're trying to bring in, we have $3 million worth of art down there and no one goes to see it, including a Renoir, that there's only six of them in the entire world and we have one and people get, they don't go and see it. So now they're really trying to develop this, but I'm like thinking I'm gonna go talk to some people when I get back from Bioneers to, uh, about um, places for artists. So I think that's it. And if anyone's in that group with me, did I miss anything? Okay. What about someone from Alon's group? Someone? Great. Come on up. Hey, you guys. <laughs> hey, I'm Melanie. Uh, in our group, we talked about art and spirituality and how the question of how it correlated and kind of just how to open space and free-forming dialogue conversations between us. And for that question, I personally responded with um, how I see art and spirituality. It's really, it's a ritual. And through art, you can create so much and also like to really ground yourself and to be able to calm yourself down through different practices, whether it be through movement, through spoken word, music, drawing, anything that really like fills your heart up and your soul and that's really important and those are part of things like that's spirituality it's embodying all of your inner virtues and art can be a part of that and it is a part of that because we all are artists activists and healers and um we also talked like along that going into calmness and really just taking that time to yourself and that can be through all these forms of art and was it? And Catherine also told us that she makes um, these structures in the deserts that you can just be calm in, correct? Yes. It sounds beautiful, and I'm excited to look that up more, more information. And it's important for the first 20 minutes of each day, because that 
as advice that it sets your day. So with that, that that's the time that you can put your rituals into practice, whether it be just light stretching in the morning and, you know, to get really like your blood flowing and the oxygen running through your body and just taking that time to yourself every day is really important. If it's not the first 20, maybe like midday, if you're in the normal world working and life gets a little hectic, you know, like, hey, go outside, breathe, look at the sky, it's a beautiful day. And breathing is very important. We're going to tag team. We're going to stand together. Because there was... Um, not everyone likes talking in public. <laughs> <laughs> but and, you're going to read the notes, okay? Yeah. Okay. So we um, started with a question about museums into streets and the access into museums. And a first response was that they're, they tend to be really expensive. Um, and then there was a project at MoMA. So, yeah, so can I help? Yeah. yeah, so we talked about how there's more museums going out into public space instead of expecting people to come in. And part of that is because museums have become very expensive. And part of it is because museums are a dying breed. You've got a Renoir in town and no one will come into the museum. How do you get it outside of the museum? And so there are a lot of initiatives moving towards that. And what do we say about the James, SSMOMA? The... the there's a ground floor. I've, I've been told that the whole ground floor of the new museum is going to be free when it reopens in the spring. So even if you don't have, I have not yet been told how much the museum is going to cost to get into. No one has been able to tell me that yet. But I do know that you'll be able to wander the whole ground floor for free um, as soon as it opens. And the, and the Broad Museum that just opened in uh, Art Broad Museum the Broad, that just opened yeah. in L.A. is totally free. Yeah. Wow. Totally free. Well, so. he can afford to make his museum free, and he should. <laughs> well, it's um, cool that he did. He, it, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it is cool, and he should. Okay. There's also the James Irvine Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, so we, talk, we talked a little bit about um, private philanthropy and how the James Irvine Foundation is a great example. It was founded in the 30s by an agriculturalist who basically put all of his uh, Irvine, a third of Irvine, into the land trust. And um, now the Irvine Foundation, I just, I don't work for them. I just interviewed a program officer, which is how I happen to know this. But they've cultivated their wealth um, since the foundation was developed. And they give away $650 million annually um, for art, youth, and um, politics, specifically to better the lives of Californians. And so that's a really interesting way of thinking about what private money can do, specifically for um, public good. Um, I'm going to run through a few of them. Yeah. There was a question about, or there's this thought of, if you ask an artist, or if you ask somebody if they're an, an artist, they'll be hesitant even if they're just taking a break, like a two-month break from making art. Um, and asking the question if they like making art. There's a distinguishing between those two. Um, There's a question about placemaking and, um, and bringing art activities into non-commercial places, public places. And the, um, I don't remember the name of the project, or the luggage store in San Francisco mm -hmm. is doing a, Knitting, crochet, or crochet yeah. project in the Tenderloin, um, and then there's a question 
of maybe you could talk more about the um, working for yourself is actually like having a lot of bosses. <laughs> Was and, that part of it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, but but specifically that she writes for the Guardian, KQED, um, other small publishers, and just like is in a lot of different places. Um, and you work on a project called The Invisible Venue. Mm -hmm. Um, which is called that because it was started online. <laughs> and a question about um, issues, having different issues in Toronto and other places, mm -hmm. um, and informal art spaces being taken by formal spaces, mm -hmm. um, and then a lot on... There was... Theater Gates. The Astor Gates, artist-led initiatives like what Dorka talked about. Also, Rick Lowe is another great example. Um, but there are many examples of artist-led initiatives um, to tackle big city um, issues or even political lobbying. A lot of artists like that are in my show, actually. I mean, Favi is also like that. Um, and those are grassroots artist-led initiatives. That means you can do it. You don't have to wait for somebody else to do it. You can start today whatever the thing is that you care about. And then we talked about the exodus of artists from San Francisco and moving to places like Detroit and, um, and there being a lot of contract work at universities. Um, and that's what I got. Yeah, we were all over the place. Okay, Thank thanks Alex. <laughs> So thank you everyone for being here. The one thing that really everyone can do is to support the arts by going to shows, going to uh, buying art. And we have Faviana here who is going to have her art in the back here for sale, art right out front. Um, I'm doing a book signing right after this. And uh, Christian has her show at um, Mills until November 20. December 13th, so go see that. That is one of the most important ways that you can support the arts and be parts of the, part of the arts, to support the local artists and arts organizations and nonprofits in your community. So thanks everyone for being here. Thank you so much. And thanks to the panelists. Mm -hmm.